MSW Media. This month marks the five-year anniversary of the release of my book, American Wino, A Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues. And coming up in just a little bit, I'm going to be talking to someone who is featured prominently in that tome, Maynard James Keenan, lead singer of Tool, A Perfect Circle, Pussifer, and also the owner and winemaker, Caduceus Cellars and Merkin Vineyards. First, I want to... Uh, Acknowledge someone who passed away on April 4th, Francisco Alcaraz, who was the former master distiller of Patron Tequila. He died at the age of 75, and I, I got to know Francisco. I went down to Patron, and he was just a beautiful man, and he had a career that spanned more than 50 years. He's thought to have been the longest-serving master distiller in the tequila sector. He officially retired as Master Distiller Patron on my birthday, July 14th, 2020, after 30 years with that brand, and he was replaced by David Rodriguez, who had been working with Francisco for about almost 20 years. just wanted to uh, send my condolences to his friends and family and acknowledge one of the true greats in the industry, Francisco Alcaraz of Patron. Invite you to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Imbiber. You can follow the podcast account on Instagram. That's WWD underscore podcast. Now, as mentioned, Maynard played a uh, significant role in the book, American Wino. To do this book, I drove around the United States for nearly four months, from sea to shining sea, visiting wineries. The final stop on my long road trip was to see Maynard in Jerome, Arizona. So I just want to set it up right before I got there. As I pulled back onto Interstate 40, my pal J. Bo Jones over at Sirius XM 70s on 7 dialed up a doozy. Cindy Greco's Making Our Dreams Come True. You might know it as the theme song from Laverne and Shirley. That's one of my top secret shame songs. Those are tunes that come on the radio and make you think that for the sake of your dignity and the dignity of those around you, you should change the channel. And then instead of changing the channel, you roll your windows up and you crank that terrible, embarrassing shit as high as it will go and sing along at the top of your lungs. Others on my personal list of shame songs are Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth, Lou Bega's Mambo Number no. 5, Creed's Higher, 
Hootie and the Blowfishes, I Only Want to Be With You. Pretty much everything Britney Spears has ever recorded, but especially Oops, I Did It Again. Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli, The Sign by Ace of Bass, and the all-time champion Nookie by Limp Bizkit. Often when I ask people for their secret shame songs, they get confused and they tell me they're shameless songs. For instance, my good pal Scott Alexander told me his was Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. This is not a secret shame song. It is a shameless song. Secret shame songs are actively terrible, like the list I just provided you. But you can't help yourself. You hide yourself from the world like a junkie or a crackhead or a cake fart fetishist. That's a thing, by the way. Look it up. And you indulge in your sexy, sexy sin. Shameless songs, on the other hand, fill the world with so much awesome, you are compelled to act like an insane person. I've seen Scott sing Don't Stop Me Now at karaoke. It's pretty epic. And when you can sing a song like that at the top of your lungs while you dance like no one's watching, even though everyone is totally watching, you, my friend, are dealing with a shameless song. Nookie has essentially the same message as Don't Stop Me Now. That message is, I like to fuck. A lot. But where Don't Stop Me Now is an exuberant celebration of grabbing life with both hands, your mouth, and your dick, Nookie is a rapey frat boy playing Edward Forty Hands with George Zimmerman. It's fun for a minute. You know things are going to get ugly before midnight. So where was I? Oh yeah, Laverne and Shirley. My favorite line from the theme song to the show is, Never heard the word impossible. I love how optimistic it is, despite the fact that it is an irrefutable lie. Because besides the odds against Cindy Greco never having run across that particular word before, the word is in the goddamn song that Cindy Greco wrote. The only way it could have even have been true at the moment she wrote the thing would be if she had just made up a random string of sounds that happened to correspond to an English word. Me? I've never heard the word graptigulous. But who cares? I guess Cindy just got lucky. But you know what? While it's extremely unlikely that Cindy Greco has never heard that word, you know what it's not? Impossible. There is nothing we won't try. Never heard the word impossible this time. There's no stopping us. We're gonna make it. I was in Arizona. What kind of lunatic would try to grow wine in motherfucking Arizona? And we got the man with the answer coming up. As the host of a show called What We're Drinking, people often ask me, hey, what are you drinking? When it comes to American-made whiskey, my go-to is Rabbit Hole. Their unique recipes were created by their founder, a guy named Cave. He and his team at Rabbit Hole spare no expense in making their bourbon and rye. They have their own cooking methods and use top-of-the-line grains. They never chill filter, and they use barrels that are toasted, charred, and wood-fired, which almost nobody does. What you end up with is a line of bourbon and rye with these really rich, deep flavors that are unlike anything you've ever tasted. What are you having? It's a question as old as the bartending profession itself. And if you ask me, the answer is Rabbit Hole. You know, but it's not all whiskey here at What We're Drinking headquarters. A lot of times I like to drink rum, just any rum. I'm talking about Batiste rum, the first sustainable American craft rum. 
call it a 3R rum because the makers of Batiste Rum practice regenerative agriculture, they use renewable energy, and they make responsible choices. Batiste Rum is made from 100% pure, fresh cane juice, minimal processing, single distillation, it is distilled sunshine. I'm walking on sunshine. Check out BatisteRum.com to learn more. That is B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. That H in rum is a tip of the hat to the French Caribbean where it's sourced. And as I like to say, the H is silent, but I promise you, you won't be. You're going to be telling everybody you know to get some. Joining me now, the owner and winemaker of Caduceus Cellars and Merkin Vineyards. He's also the lead singer of not one, not two, but three bands of note. His name is Maynard James Keenan. How are you, my friend? Uh, grand. Grand. It's good to see you, man. It's been a while. Can we, can, can we circle back to the, world, to, to the word lead singer? What do you like? Front man? Vocalist, I guess. Vocalist. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's funny because lead singer was more like, you know, like the Temptations. I consider uh, you a lead singer, although no one else in the band is singing. So you would be the only singer. Well, in, in, su- in that band, in Tool. Yeah, yeah. In Pussifer, I'm the co-singer. Vocalist. Co-vocalist. I will, I will now have some wine and reset. Hold on. There we go. <laughs> It's all good. I knew you were going to give me shit right out of the gate. Right I had to out. make sure, but I thought I was going to have to wait like five minutes, but you just, you teed it up. So I just you know. go, man. I went for it. Well, you know, I haven't seen you in a while, man. It's been, uh, been way too long. We, uh, we talked about doing this in person. It's your fortified compound in Arizona, but, uh, the current circumstances still prevent that from happening. And I wanted to well, first, I want to have a toast with you. I, I got a bottle of the Shinola Arancio. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, sir. And that's the 2019 Orange Malvasia Bianca. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that grape. The, the Malvasia Bianca is the most prevalent uh, of the Malvasia grape family. And I want to talk about this. You you love your uh, Italian. Well, this is Mediterranean. I guess this originally is from Greece, right? No, that that clone is actually from uh, Piemonte. That's the that's the Piemonte's version of that. Obviously, a Bianca de Piemonte. Piemonte. And you love the Italian varietals, and they grow well in Arizona, right? Yes, very well. Spanish and Italian, both. Some Southern Rhone, depending on the clone, does really well. Um, a lot of things do really well here, but as far as the shiners for me, it's been the Spanish and the Italian Mediterranean. Why is that? Why is, why is Arizona uniquely suited? Not uniquely, but I mean, it is well suited to, to yield those grapes. Um, I really don't know. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of volcanic uh, influence in this state. There's a lot of uh, limestone in this state. But I think um, maybe it's uh, those areas are a lot say warmer than Bordeaux, Burgundy. Um, and because of our elevation, we have a, a little bit of a, a leg up with elevation. So even though we're kind of on a, a longitude closer to the equator, we're actually higher up in elevation. So there's, there's, a, there's a strange equation that goes with that, that, that helps us kind of 
hone in on that little band of Mediterranean grapes. And there's quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, you oh, shit. hang on. Yep. Got to plug in. God damn it. He's not plugged in. Plugging in. Plugging in. Yeah, I was getting this thing set up, and uh, I forgot to actually plug the computer in when I was testing stuff. My apologies. We good? But delay. Yes, we're dandy. So I'm curious. You know, it's been an interesting year for all of us. I know it's been an interesting year for you. As reported, you you did you did got COVID. You got sick. You had to go through a lot of stuff going on. Now we know at least from what I read, how that has impacted, you know, the band and how they, but what about wine? How did the past year and what you went through personally and just, and and not only that, but just restrictions on workforce and everything else, how did that affect the wine production? You know, I could go into uh, crazy details, but uh, it it suffice to say on every level, um, just, you know, from just, um, Equipment, any kind of expansion, any kind of construction we're doing, uh, construction materials are easily twice or two and a half times what they were a year and a half ago. So on that, um, on labor, people are afraid to work uh, or they're, they're, you know, the the labor contractors can't get people to come up because they're afraid of, uh, of COVID. Um, people get their get their stimmies and they stay home. They don't actually want to keep the thing going. Yeah. That needs, you know, cause the grapes don't care about who you're voted for or whether you think you have a pandemic or not, they don't care about anything about that. So we have to continue working in the vineyard regardless. So it makes it more difficult if people are not there to work. Well, you mentioned the grapes don't care. At least tell me that the 2020 harvest was a good one for you. They cooperate. Uh, it was okay. Um, we we had uh, had a devastating, not devastating, just a pretty big kick in the shorts. Uh, late fall frost in nineteen, which kind of affected the grapes for uh, twenty. Not as much for us because we tend to crop back anyway. But our neighbors were hit with not only a double frost in the fall winter of like an early winter in 19, but also the heat was, it was so hot and with no rain for so long that if you didn't have a, a, a decent situation with your water, uh, people were down, I think 30 or 40% this year in grapes. We were only down about 15, 20. You mentioned the, the, the frost from 19. How, how does it affect the 20 crop? What what is it do? Is it is it just shocks the vines so so badly? It it, it just fries the it fries the buds because you're you're basically you're nurturing if you're farming properly you're farming for we're farming this year for two and a half or three years from now, right? So that's all it's all set up for a couple of years away, not necessarily just to get grapes off, get as many grapes off of the vine as you can right now, and then try to cram, you know, nutrients and stuff on it in the spring to hope that they can keep up with the, the abuse you gave them last year. We're trying to make sure that the vines are healthy and happy and, and producing uh, for grapes two and a half, three years from now. Between Caduceus and Merkin, what are you, I mean, how much total production are you doing? We're at about, you know, I want to say we're about 9,000 cases 
Okay. <clears throat> spread across several brands because we also have the 4-8 Wine Works. Yeah. And 4-8 Wine Works is actually going to take over the the Pussifer uh, label soon. Um, kind of keep that under that umbrella. But, you know, everything's you know, everything's going well with those brands. So we're kind of, you know, slowly expanding a little bit out uh, in each one of their umbrellas. But around 9,000 is about what we're doing. Where does that put you in terms of – who's the biggest Arizona producer who's putting out the, the most wine quantity-wise? I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you. There's a, there's a bunch of people that do, uh, that do a lot of stuff in grocery stores. And I imagine because of their price point, they're probably moving a lot of juice. But, but even that, I think – I mean, I could, have, I could have probably answered that three years ago. But with COVID and the restaurant industry being offline – for the most part, kind of, uh, distribution houses were struggling, especially smaller ones. You know, they were having a rough time. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what those people are doing because that would be that, that would be where they move the most wine But for us doing, you know, between eight and 10,000 cases a year, mostly direct sale through wine club and through tasting rooms. Um, I, I wouldn't know what they're, what they're doing, what they're doing. Do you take the wine out when you go on tour? Do you ever do you ever pre- offer it for sale at any of the uh, shows you're doing with any of the bands? Well, well, we can't really. We'd have to, you'd have to go through a local distributor or a local uh, retailer. We can't just sell. We can't sell direct that way. Yeah, because I do. I've seen some of the. You know, like I know Metallica brings their whiskey with them. Uh, well, they bring it with them, but they go through. They have to go through a fucking shit ton of hoops to get to get that into that building. If the whiskey is being distributed by like Southern Wine and Spirits, yeah, they'll just get it into the building for that show. But um, I could be wrong. But there's there's a lot of every state had its own set of uh, liquor rules. So it could very well be that they have somebody on payroll to jump through all those awful, ridiculous, inconsistent hoops. <laughs> it's a mess. And then I mean, and then you know, we had the tariffs that were happening recently, and that. That fucked everything again and in other ways. And do you ever envision a time where there's sort of a uniform set of rules? Or you just don't think that's going to happen? Where because right now it's every state's got their own thing. Going. There's a, there's the one thing you keep forgetting that's uh, that's involved, and that's humans. <laughs> yeah. Flawed, and aren't we? So yeah, it'll it, yeah they're never going to really agree on that because you're always going to have you know the wholesalers are always going to uh, make an argument that the the producers are the problem but they're also going to make the argument that the retailer is the problem and then they're also going to make the argument that the customers are the problem guess who's the guess who's the real problem i i got a feeling you're you're hinting at something here because you know it's one of those things Maynard, where i get a lot of people ask me that all the time and they just say why can't i simply find a winery that i like and patronize that winery and join their wine club and have them ship it directly to me and I say, well, because humans, that's not enough hands in that pot. You know, that's, that's yeah. too easy. That's an exchange yeah. between you and the winery. And there's too many other people who are relying on their cut that had nothing really to do with it, but they still want right. their cut because it's been that way for a long, long time. Since uh, 1933. Yeah. Prohibition, man. Prohibition. So many of the laws that we have now, I don't know if people understand how much they're rooted rooted in prohibition. I mean, mm-hmm. and then it just became a money thing. You know, oh, let's keep this going. We can charge people for it. But anyway, we're uh, we're really hitting on all the uh, depressing topics here. How are you? 
now? How are you doing right now? You're doing a live stream with Pussifer on the 17th, following up the one you did last year, which was, that was doing quarantine too, which is crazy. It was closer to the beginning, right? Uh, That was actually middle because it was October. So we'd already been kind of shut down and opened and shut down and opened and all kinds of crap. Um, Yeah, we did, we did the, we did existential reckoning. Uh, We, we recorded it live at Arcasante outside of Phoenix, just north of Phoenix. And this one is um, the the entire Money Shot album, and we're in the middle of editing that film right now. But we've we shot that live at the Mayan Theater down in LA, downtown LA. So you're you're feel good though, like the pipes feel okay. I mean, everything you went through. Yeah, I mean, we you know we were using a lot of smoke for the filming, um, so I think some of that fog kind of mess with your throat by the end of the shoot. But I made it through it. When you told me what you were going through and you told me a while ago, A, as your friend, I was concerned, but I, I thought about the fans and you have such passionate fans and I, I ha- it obviously had to be going through your mind. Like, what if you hear about these long haul symptoms and things like that? Like, were you, were you yeah. scared shitless? Like, what if, what if it doesn't work like it did? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a goof like that. Uh, I would, it would be fucking devastating if I couldn't couldn't sing anymore but i'm not if it, if that's the only part of my body that it affected i would find a way to do something you know we just you find a way uh tell me a little bit about the we'll pivot now to the wine that i'm drinking right now the shinola arancia correct 2019 correct orange malvasia bianca so 20 bucks a bottle right it's a steal for this thing roughly yeah can you tell us a little bit about what why this varietal, uh, why you chose this, and uh, what you love about it. Yeah, um, obviously a Bianca is pretty versatile in the state. You can almost trip over it and uh, and still make a good wine out of it. Um, uh, really uh, floral and aromatic. Um, and I think in other regions, uh, like California, it might kind of get really kind of syrupy and jammy and like gooey. Uh, but here, just I think it's the elevation and the soils. It ends up being something pretty versatile. You can do it super light. You can do it, uh, you know, you can crop it uh, and leave it hang for a while and turn it into, um, you know, like a dessert wine. So there's quite a, there's quite a versatile grape um, with cool results. And what we did with this one was uh, I left it on skins. I just distemmed it, put it in a bin, and let it while ferment out in the sun. So that skin contact... Uh, ends up being what you're getting uh, on that palate, kind of uh, very. It's like a, it's like a leathery white wine. Mm. I really, really enjoy this because I, again, you said it was interesting. Is that you can leave it hang a little bit longer and it's going to get sweet. This thing has just got a great balance between the tartness, sweetness. It's it's right there. It's a really beautiful looking wine. I love the color on this. You've got sort of a, a golden golden color to a golden orange color to it and just very pleasant. Yeah. It's a, and it, you know, it's, it's one of those wines because it has a little bit more tannic structure in it uh, as a white wine. Um, it, you know, knowing it kind of as an amber wine or a skin contact wine or a, a, a orange wine. I found that a dish like, like a wine like this goes really well. If you like Thai food, you know, like yourself a papaya salad or, you know, something that has a little bit of heat on it, just kind of Thai spices, oh, um, no. Southwest spices as well. 
sometimes Indian food, depending on the, if it gets a little bit too much cumin coriander, then the, then it doesn't necessarily work with, uh, uh, Indian cuisine. Um, but, uh, it's, it's quite the, it's, it's quite a, quite a meal wine. How hands-on are you? I mean, back when, when I guess now COVID screwed things, but restaurant accounts, things like that, are you, are you like in there, like offering suggestions like that and places where you're on the menu? You just, you're just leaving that up to the Psalms, I guess. Right. Yeah. You, you really have to, cause you don't know, you don't know what the, what chefs coming or going in those locations and what kind of spices they're going to introduce. So I could say a word, but it wouldn't be accurate if the, if the, if the new chef changes directions with spices. So, um, you know, just something as simple as a, a street taco can go really well with our wines, depending on how much you're going to put, you know, spices on it. If you're going to go full on uh, road fire, uh, well, then no, like not a lot of not a lot of wines go with tacos that are on fire. But um, you know, we could for for a mellow uh, a mellow street taco that would be delicious. Yeah, with that yeah. one. Are you um, now? I guess so. Where are we now? We're in April, so we're just getting ready. For the next growing season. Yep. Are you, I know back in the day, you sort of planned your touring band schedule around winemaking. You mm-hmm. made it a point to never be on tour in the fall, right? So you got to be there for harvest and all that. Has the fact that everything got fucked up last year changed that at all? Or are you, you're sticking around and doing handling the winemaking duties. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's every year. I mean, the only the only analogy I could uh, give you for that would be me being here. I'm making real time decisions, and I'm on the forklift as fruits coming in. You might you might have been expecting two tons off a block, but you only got one ton. Well, the vessel that I'm going to ferment that in is going to change uh, the outcome of that wine. So I have to make decisions on the fly. Um, and so that is, that is the songwriting right there. That is, that is the, the record recording as it were. So, I mean, for example, you could have somebody who goes, here's the drum parts. Here's my drums. Uh, you play it. Somebody else play it. It's not going to sound the same. Yeah. So I could hand it off to somebody to do these things, but the wine's not going to end up being the same by any stretch. In conversations we've had, I think not compare them. But certainly, you take as much pride in winemaking as songwriting. Yeah, they're very they're they're very similar anyway in structure, except one is one is happening whether you want it or two or not. Like it's harvest is harvest. Mother Nature doesn't care about your recording schedule. So the grapes are coming, and you have to you have to deal with reacting um, when that grape is phenolically ripe and ready to harvest, or it's not quite ready to harvest and I have to make a real time decision based on that big fucking cloud I see coming on, on the horizon, uh, toward the vineyard. If, if, if we get rain, we can't harvest, uh, especially if you want to naturally ferment because the rain messes with those natural yeasts in the, in the vineyard. So I have to wait for that to redevelop and that could end up pushing our sugars farther than we want to push them. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of balancing act and it's all real time decisions. What would be an equivalent challenge you'd face either on tour, in the studio? I mean, is there just, if you can't write, if it's not coming to you? Right. Um, well, some of our bands take our time until it does. Um, zing. Um, 14 years. Uh, 
I wasn't sure it was ever going to happen again at some point, but yeah, with the uh, tool, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. No, but you know, it's, it's, uh, I think the, I can, I can speak more to the similarities better than the differences. And the similarities are, are just that process of listening and, uh, and reacting in the moment to the thing. There's just, there's just more of a clock attached to, uh, winemaking in the, in the fall than there is, uh, in the studio writing a record. You have a little more luxury as artists and we've fought for that, uh, privilege over the years to make sure that, uh, we take our time. Obviously, there's a scientific element to winemaking. What that scientific element to the music? Oh no, 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 no. That's there's there's you know that's why you hire you know you have a guy who's an engineer, right? So Matt Mitchell is an incredible songwriter, an incredible player, incredible instrument, you know, um, a composer, an arranger, but he's equally uh, a, a strength when it comes to engineering. So he has to understand mic placement and all the you know all the math that comes along with uh, dealing with sound in a, a small or a large space, um, the various kinds of mics and how they react to sound, loud sound, soft sound, and then entire you know rack gear that t- practically takes a fucking degree to understand how to run some of these combination um, preamps and compressors. Uh, just that part is very you have to you have to be a a wizard pretty much to do those things. And I think, you know, in the, in winemaking as well, there's some, some of those things come naturally, some of them don't. Uh, so there's definitely some science involved in both. I was uh, listening recently to Tom Morello. He was talking about, I didn't, I didn't realize this, that he had gone to high school with Adam Jones. Yes. He was talking about those early days and he was talking about tool and he was like, that's 40 years, right? 40 years ago? 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Excuse me. 30 years. 1990. Jesus, dude. Right? Yeah, not 90. Yeah, 1990. So, Good. Yeah, right. So when you're Should we take a Should we take a nap right now? <laughs> I know. Should we take a little nappy? A little nappy? I know, man. And that was the crazy part is, is I'm listening to it and I'm remembering like when Tool came out and when Rage came out and all this. And I'm just thinking, how, how did this happen? How did, where did, where did it go? Like, where did, how did 30 fucking years go by, right? Since, you know, that happened. So for you, I, I guess I was wondering when you're out here, and the band starts and you start rolling and, and things are happening. Did, was there any part of you that at that time knew that this could be possible? The, the winemaker side? Is that, is that something that even crossed your mind back then? Or how did, you know, when did that become a thing? Because, I mean, you started doing the wine in the 90s, right? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I was, I was getting into wine, but I broke ground right around 2001 to actually plant my first uh, vineyards. But I think, you know, having come from uh, living in the middle of farms in Michigan, working the, you know, working the peach orchards and the asparagus fields and the apple orchards um, and, our, and, of course, our own personal garden, uh, you know, I come from a little bit of an agricultural background. When I really was getting into birds when I was working in Boston, one of the thoughts that I'd had is, what if I were to figure out a way to, you know, actually build my own little greenhouse and all the food that I'm feeding my birds is stuff that we've grown here. Um, and that kind of progressed to eventually into wine. So yeah, all the, all that stuff is, was in mind and I'm, you know, I'm fairly open-minded as far as direction. You just 
hear the call and you either answer or you don't. I tend to answer. It seems like a lot of the choices that you make personally and, and, and the bands that you're in have made, you're not a person who tends to go the easy way. Was Arizona part of that too? Because it wasn't an obvious wasn't an obvious place like to I mean you could have come out here and, and got a place in Santa Barbara you could was was the choice of to relocate and make your wine in Arizona was part of that just your nature to challenge yourself in ways you know well that's there's several answers to, to that question that go down various various avenues so I'll, we'll rewind a little bit I moved I moved to Arizona to get away from Los Angeles I saw a lot of my friends get caught up in uh, in some of the the vampire activity out there, and it can be it's pretty it can be pretty dark there. People are definitely on the prowl um, for raw talent, and they they'll suck every ounce of your life force out of you to further their agenda. Um, I you know there's a lot of great people in LA. I met a lot of wonderful wonderful people. They're still there. Some left, whatever. But I needed to go because I felt like. I'm from a small town and I kind of needed to get back and replug into that energy first uh, so that I could continue without the, the, you can't, cause a lot of that poison you can't see coming in Los Angeles. It's, it's, it's the same in big cities, any big city, New York, New York's the same way. Philly's the same way. They're all, it's that there's, they're cities. Um, Tom Waits wrote half a dozen songs about it, you know, getting off the bus and getting, getting swooped up and jacked. Um, so first and foremost was moved to get to recenter, uh, to get out of Los Angeles. And then while I was here, I started to recognize similarities to places around the world. Um, and I thought that it could grow grapes here. So it wasn't really, I love to pretend like I completely rolled the dice and jumped off the ledge with my eyes closed. No, this area looks very much like, some parts of the world that I've been to. And it didn't seem like a huge stretch and gamble to me. And maybe that's the problem is I don't, I don't recognize when a challenge is a big challenge. I just recognize it as a challenge. Well, yeah. And that, I mean, and that's, that's the thing that is impressive is that, you know, from the outside looking in, I go, man, this guy you're making these choices with tool. You're making these choices with a perfect circle. You're doing this with Pussifer. It's all different. It's always, it always seems like you're, you would be fucking miserable if you were doing something that seemed obvious or easy. I think it's just my upbringing. You know, my, my dad was pretty, uh, pretty active, still is pretty active. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you just kind of, that's where you, if you see where you've come from and it's inspiring you, I think you tend to follow it. If you, if you look where you've come from and it's not inspiring, in fact, it's negative, you tend to run from it. Um, that was my, so, that's my case. Like, I, I guess I have a yeah, different, so, you, you know, from having read the books is that, yeah, mine was, I need to get the fuck out of here because yeah. this is killing me. This right. torpor and this lack of move movement and energy that I'm, you know, is killing me, but it seems like you had the opposite thing that that's sort well, of, well, I think the problem with what you end up with, with like within your case is that you, you, you just know you need to run away from something. You don't really understand what you're running to or towards. So there's no, there's a lack of direction. So I think a lot of people can tend to 
latch themselves onto something that they perceive as being uh, their leader or a way to go um, that might be bad advice, uh, might not be the direction or the person you really necessarily want to follow. Um, but it was, you know, understandable if you're drowning and you see a boat, you're going to get in the boat. It might be the wrong boat. I got I got in a few wrong boats. I, I recall you telling me a while back, this. you were talking about the beginning of Tool, and correct me if I get this wrong, but you'd been out and you were watching music. It might've been on the sunset strip or something. And you were, there was a shit band up there and you were, you didn't let and, and somebody turned, Oh, you should get up there and fucking try it. Right. And you did it. Yeah. You shouldn't, you shouldn't challenge me like that. <laughs> yeah. And that, and to me, but I'm saying like, to me, <laughs> I, that is impressive because it took me so long in my life. It took me well past that age. I mean, you were when the, you were in your twenties then, I guess. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yep. I don't know that I, I had that in me then. And I just, the idea that you just went, fuck it, I'll, I'll do it. I'll show you. Yeah, I'll get up there and I'll do it. And you did it. And how long after that was the band going? A year, named nine months, year. And is that yeah, just- but the- I think, but no, I think that's just, I think that's just problem solving. It's I have a, I have a rest, uh, restaurant tour friend here who has many, many places around the Valley here. Um, Name Eric and, you know, he op- he'll open up, you know, his wife's like, are we done? He's like, yeah. And then like, you see, he's <laughs> putting his efforts into some other remodelers, uh, you know, buying a building and putting something in. And uh, I go, so how's it going? He goes, you know, money and challenges. That's it. It's just money and challenges. What's it going to take to get that thing done? Um, so, that, I, you know, that, of course, he's coming from a very financial uh, point of view. Um, but you know, for me, it's just challenges, right? You, you, I see, I, I see that there is a thing in front of me that repeatedly, over and over again, every week can be improved. I think I can see how that could be improved. Um, great, let's try it. And then, so it doesn't really. It's not really like I'm going to make it. You watch. Like, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to fix a problem that I see. Look look, your wallpaper's peeling. Do you mind if I get some glue? It's, it's as simple as that. Have you tried changing the gaskets in your fucking sink so it stops leaking? It's just problem solving. In terms of your own fulfillment, happiness, obviously I, I got to imagine being on stage in front of a large group of people who are just vibing to, to your music and your songs has got to be a rush. We, we hear that all the time. There's a structure and there's a lot of people involved when you go on tour and there's schedules to be kept and things to be done and handlers and press and all this other shit that you got to do and and which is, uh, you know, part which comes with your success and that's it's it's a testament to to what you've done and we but at the same time it's I've seen you in your element making wine where it's you and you're in the vineyard do. Is there one that's more fulfilled? Do you, do you like the autonomy that you have making wine as opposed to having all these people around and all these obligations when you're on tour? Or are they both rewarding in their own way? Yeah, that's it's a it's again it's a challenge, right? Uh, I'm going to go out this time. I'm going to present this show in a in a different way. I mean, especially with uh, um, all th- actually just all three of these bands. All three have. There's always a puzzle we're trying to solve. Adam has crazy idea for whatever the show is going to be. And 
almost without even seeing what he's doing for the production, I come up with a whole new character for that tour, for that album, just to help keep, you know, keep the theater alive, right? It's we're entertainers at the end of the day. We're entertainers, we're songwriters, we're artists, we're trying to express something, but we're also, we have to, as you said, there's, it's not an evil, but it's a necessary part of it as being, and you, you have to understand you're, enter, you're being an entertainer. So how do we entertain? Lucifer, it's like seamless, right? We, we, we just reinvent and go again. Um, you know, we're, we're going backwards in time now with these, with these things. Uh, we're going to do money shot now. So that means we're going to bring back all the luchadors and Billy D and the desert and all a whole, you know, side storyline. Um, but it's still us being creative um, and in our element. Um, even, but even with, you know, it sounds like I'm on my own making the wine out here, but I'm not, I've got Tim white right next to me. Uh, we're, you know, partners in this thing to get it done. Um, bouncing ideas off of each other. And we, you know, we have to rely on just like the tour. We have to rely on, you know, when is the truck coming with fruit? Was there an accident on the 17? Is it delayed? There's, you know, there's all kinds of collateral um, hurdles. You mentioned Adam in the shows. We're talking about Tool and what you do. How much thought does Danny put into which basketball jersey he's going to wear on any given night? Um, he has, I think he has an app that ha- that's attached to a shock. He has a shock watch, um, uh, which is like a shock collar. Uh, and it just, it, it starts shocking him to say, you know, dude, you're, you know, you're, you're in a rival state. Make sure you wear the wrong Jersey. Hornets Jersey, Hornets Jersey. Um, you know, I talked to uh, a friend of mine who prior to this, who's a big fan. You've met him, my friend, Justin. And we were talking about not just tool, but all of the bands that you're in the musicianship, I think is, is just so incredible. What do you chalk that up? Like, did you get like, especially with Tool, because it's your first band? Mm -hmm. How do you find? Because I, I, you can make and make an argument that that uh, you know that all that Justin and Adam and Danny, they're all always going to be mentioned in the top players for their respective uh, instruments. Mm -hmm. Did you get lucky, or did how did? I think it's there's you can't. I don't think you can separate luck from timing, but also. You, you have to acknowledge that uh, if you're going to get lucky, if you're not ready when that opportunity comes, that doesn't matter. I mean, some singer or something could have come across some of those guys at some point, but they weren't fucking ready. I did the work. I was, I've been doing work like this on, on writing and telling stories and developing characters and, and singing um, since as long as I can remember. So I've done the work. So when the opportunity came, I was ready for the opportunity. And I think that's the part people miss on this. Oh, it was just luck. Everybody kind of came together and Zeppelin just kind of happened. Bullshit. All those guys were involved in stuff. They were doing the work long before Led Zeppelin happened. So it's just, but you don't see that work. You just see, you know, you see the next step. Like you got, yeah, this impression that you guys got together and jammed and it was, you know, the first album got written in the well, we had, I mean, if you, truth be told, like, uh, with even with perfect circle, um, it happened right around the same time with tool, we were jamming and we all really sucked, but I just happened to be mining that day. And I came across this set of four rings and we put the four rings on and, Oh my God, 
and it happened. Um, well, I, you know, again, I mentioned that, listen to that Tom Morello interview recently, and he, he did say that Adam was a, a far superior guitar player to him anyway, at least when they were growing up. Like he was, he was clearly a very talented musician and I got to figure the other guys were as well. And did you sing a lot though, prior to coming out here? Yeah, I was in, uh, I, I was spent my entire high school. I was, uh, the hardcore was, band that we talked about that night. What was the band? That no, was? no choir, like literally like from the ground up, understanding scales, singing scales, uh, in a, in a, in a formal setting in class in high school for four years. Okay. Uh, understanding how to sight read, understanding how to, how to sing with, uh, our, our teacher would, you know, play a note on the piano and she would put her hand here and that's that note. Okay. We're going to go with middle C and then she starts, she'll do a note on the piano and go like this with her hand to go up to whatever that note is or down to that note. And then she would stop playing. She would just go like this and you would have to follow and get about through like you know, four to eight measures of the note. And then she would come back and hit the, hit the key to see how far off we were. So that was every day of trying to perfect just that um, tonal awareness and uh, being able to sing without accompaniment, acapella, not really acapella because we're, um, we have piano there, but um, you know, free balling. Maybe that was why I was drawn to hardcore music. Cause I just, you know, my whole neighborhood just screamed at each other all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that was the music that I heard in my head. I was like, you know, I, first time I put on minor thread, I went, I get this. I know yeah. what they're, what they're singing about here because I yeah. just got screamed at in this yep. much the same fashion. So I just opened a little more wine. I don't want to keep you too long. just a couple more hours, but uh, I opened the 2016. I, I love butchering shit. Honesta? Honeste. Honeste. That's right. Honeste. I was just... Hon uh, honest. Yeah. The honest The honest courtesans. Now, this is a combination that I, I haven't seen very often. 70% Barbera and 30% Merlot. Am I wrong in saying that's sort of an unusual combo? Yeah, it was an accidental combo. First year making wine uh, here. Well, actually, third. Second? Third. Second or third year of making wine here, I ended up getting extremely, you know, I was still under, my my grapes were still growing and I was getting quite a bit of my own fruit from our sites, but not nearly as much as I needed. So I was buy, buying from around uh, around the state, um, getting uh, fruit uh, from people. And, you know, you wanted at a particular sugar level uh, being picked, but, you know, you know, shit in one hand and wishing the other, see what you get, see which one fills up first. And so I end up with, you know, extremely ripe Merlot uh, and extremely underripe Barbera that came in at the same time. Um, and if I were to try to make either one of those on their own, it would have been a disaster. So I just put them together and, you know, because it wasn't a lot of either one really to begin with. It was going to end up being about three or four barrels total anyway. So I blended them 50-50. And I like that combo, but over the years, I'm slowly weaning myself off of the Merlot and focusing more on the Barbera. I, I think you're getting that. There's a little more muscle to this, I think, than earlier mm -hmm. variations yeah. that I've tried, and that's and that's going to be because of the Barbera. Mm -hmm. This is more full-bodied than I remember it. And, and yeah. this is the 2016. I think I've probably had much earlier 
uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. vintages of this. Yeah, and we're and we're really playing with the Barbaro is a very difficult grape. It's very finicky, and it likes what it likes. Um, it gets super high TA, like total acidity is very very high. The pH is very very low, um, but the sugars start creeping up, and they're not. It's just not quite ready to to pick yet. Um, so you're constantly fighting that balance of of TA and pH and sugar level in that grape. So we're finding that it's and that if we just kind of go the traditional method, we can we find that spot, and it's a sweet spot where we're picking it right when those acids are just uh, just tolerable, you know, rather than intolerable, and picking right at that edge uh, so that it's not super high alcohol. So we can still maintain all that richness because I'm using the Barbera in the cellar, almost like my secret weapon for acid additions. I'm, I'm adding that to other things to, to give them rather than adding tartaric acid uh, to lower pH and raise TA. I'm using the, I'm using the Barbera as my adjuster. Mm. And then on its own, as long as I age it long enough and we pick it right in that sweet spot, uh, it ends up being drinkable. So in the case of the Merlot, it kind of calms some of those things down that might be out of balance. Um, not that Merlot's flabby, but it, you know, it can add a flab. I'm curious, Maynard, because I have some winemaker friends that do this and they've enjoyed doing it. Have you ever considered going to another region? I'm not necessarily saying have your own start a wine there, but just go to, you know, say go to Australia or New Zealand or something like that to, to do a, a season there, making some wine, partnering up with someone. Is that something you've thought about doing or something you have done before? Well, I have this other day job that I do with these three bands that they rely on me touring during that period of time you're speaking of. Oh, yeah. Needy. So no, I, I would not do that to them. Uh, I need to maintain that here. However, there is a way for me. I'm, I'm looking at uh, working with some people in Michigan and, and building a winery there with, uh, with Tim and I um, to do mead, some cider, and then maybe do some some form of gamay in Michigan. Um, so, cause I'm from there and there's a lot of amazing wines being made up in the upper peninsula area. Well, you know, I had some good wine when I did Michigan. the wino tour. I, I, yeah. I had some pretty good wine in, uh, what the hell is it called? Pawpaw. Yeah. Pawpaw. Yeah. But that's, uh-huh. that's the South, that's the Southwestern side of the state, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I believe so. I don't. I don't know that for a fact. I, I, I completely have forgotten where Papa is. But although I think it's down because it was. I was on my way to Detroit, so I didn't go up. You're talking yeah, about like Traverse City up Frau, there. They have a lot of Frau, Frau Blancish that they're growing down there, and uh, yeah. I believe they're doing. I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at by Sean O'Keefe, but uh, you know, like, of course, Sab Blanc, Rieslings. I can't remember. That was the that was the portion of the trip where I was probably vaguely suicidal no uh <laughs> there was there was a moment when i when i got you know i started and i went up the coast you know this and then i went and then when i got to nebraska i was really kind of worn out and i know this sounds like an uptown problem you know like but i had torn the cartilage in my leg and i was driving hundreds of miles every day and and i actually considered going back i considered you know i had a book deal and i was like maybe i'll just go back and i can write about how i uh, couldn't make it or something and and I, it was this moment, Maynard, where I, I drove, I was in Sam Sebastiani, you know, Sebastiani's wines from Sonoma. I stayed uh-huh. at his, he had a duck hunting uh, ranch in, in northwest Nebraska, and I stayed there. And huh. when I was coming down to the 70, 
I-70, and I pulled over. And I pulled out my maps, Google Maps, and I looked to see how long it was to get back to Venice, California. It was like 1,100 miles. And I, I don't even know. I just started to drive towards the freeway, and I did not have any idea what I was going to do. And I got there, and it said 70 East, 70 West. And I went 70 East. Go east, young man. It was the thing I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. And then I went, you know, Nebraska and Iowa and then Michigan and up up that way. And, um, gorgeous country out that way. Just, you know, all that area that you drove through is incredible. Yeah, no. And it was, and you know what? And honestly, I, obviously I'm, I'm thrilled that I continued to do it. And then once I got to the East coast, I got uh, recharged. And then when I started heading West, as I started heading towards you, which mm-hmm. you're, you were the last stop before I went to Vegas and then went home. But I got sad, man. I got sad when I was in Texas because it was coming to an end. And, it, you know, and, yeah. and unless people, I encourage everybody to get out there and, and when, once we can and, and just go visit. But it's, it's, kind of, it's magical, you know, and to see this, the thing that you're doing in Arizona being replicated all over the country in places that I, many of us probably never could have imagined, you know, from Louisiana to North Georgia to, you know, wines made in every state in this country and Mm -hmm. to see it being made and and let's face it, it's not great everywhere. It isn't, you know, they're, they're, and, but it's just, they're just, they're still finding their way. They're trying to, they're still probably trying to find the right grape. That's exactly right. And, And it's also, but what is, what I did find to be the case universally was Good people, passionate people, they appreciate the land, the, the craftsmanship, all of the the things that go into that's that's everywhere. Whether they're making whether they're making a three hundred dollar wine in Napa Valley or they're making a fifteen dollar uh, you know clone in South Carolina, you know a fifteen dollar wine from uh, what's it called? Uh, Blanche Dubois was one of the clones that they grow down there in the South. It's not great wine, but. They can make it good, and I and like you said, right. I think when I think things are going to look a lot different in twenty years. I think some of the world class wines from the United States are going to be coming from regions that people didn't expect. Yeah, absolutely, and especially when once they kind of get uh, organized and pick the right grape, as we mentioned, um, but also because there is you know there is changing there's changing climate. I'm, I'm seeing it all over the place, and there's entire conferences. Um, God bless the French. You know, people are good, like, so it's changing, right? Yeah. So Chardonnay for, for champagne and, you know, uh, Pinot Noir for your champagnes, that's, you know, it's, you're having a harder time getting the balance and it's warmer and you're having to, you know, figure something out. And so they go, yeah, I mean, it's a big puzzle. And they go, so have you considered other grapes? And they're sorry, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what? I'm sorry, what did you say? That's like asking if they want to put screw caps on, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> screw caps with something not Chardonnay. Uh, yeah, they can't, they, but they, they understand there's a problem, but they, they're, it's almost like they're in their own way. And the beautiful thing about the other States here is they're going to learn from all of our mistakes. We've learned from most of California's mistakes, change direction, and they'll probably just end up uh, as us or the you know, previous people uh, laying groundwork as their guides. They'll just accidentally, um, pick the right grape and it'll just happen to do well. And then they'll seize the opportunity to make sure that their state has that identity. Um, 
in a time when people are having to completely rethink the entire way they're farming uh, in California. How many different uh, expressions, how many different wines do you have in the portfolio? Oh, Jesus. Um, well, uh, with, with Merkin, there's 10. Uh, there's the Spanish program, the Iberian, uh, sorry, the uh, Spanish Iberian program. There's the kind of Rhone-ish program. And then there's, um, sorry. Yes. Uh, and then the Italian program. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's 10 right there. And not counting all the Velvet Slippers Club wines because they constantly change. It's a moving target of us experimenting with different things. Uh, and we have a, a label uh, called the outliers because we're you know over the years we're driven again just different experiences different different um, approaches to things and they might end up becoming a staple wine at some point under the Caduceus label but for now they're an experiment and then you have the basic core uh, wines we have much much less whites than we have uh, rosés and, and or sorry much less rosés and whites than we have of reds but there's probably about um, 14 SKUs under the Caduceus label. So, you know, we're pushing 26, 27 SKUs. Now you add in 4, 8, white, red, and pink. And then the the Pussifer cans, we have five different Pussifer cans, white, red, rosé, mead, and cider. So somebody who is new to the brand wants to acquaint themselves with what you're doing as a Mm -hmm. winemaker. Could you throw out three or four bottles that you say would at least give them a, a, a proper idea about what you're all about as a winemaker? Yeah. Um, I guess so. And, you know, and I could, but I could also uh, guide them just with a general broad statement too. We're, we're making uh, our wines are very much more like Pink Floyd than they are Metallica. You, it, you have to take time, you know, you're not going to get this in a soundbite or a quick sip. You got to spend time with the bottle we highly recommend that you do it with, with food because that's how I'm making these wines. I'm, a, I'm making acid-centric uh, restrained wines that are supposed to go with food. So if that helps to start, then uh, if you have friends who are more into wine than you are, then just pick up, you know, if you're more into white, if you're more into rosé, if you're more into uh, reds, then start with the Merkin line just to kind of get yourself in the door. But you know, if you're not if you're not super highbrow about it, there's nothing different about this sparkling rosé in a can than is some of the spark than some of the rosés that we have in bottle for the other programs. It's just that sparkling and it's in a can. We didn't treat it any less with any less respect coming in. And finally, the uh, the show. I just want to make sure people get it's a, a global streaming event. Puss for Billy D in the Hall of Feathered Serpents. Doing Money Shot album by Pussifer. That is on April 17th, 2021, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. 10, what, what is this? What is all this? I think so. Yeah. yeah, sure. So they just go to PussiferLive.com to get tickets and other goodies that are there. Uh, I recommend it. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, it's, it's a fun, it's going to be a fun show. The ticket's good for 72 hours. So. Um, this is the modern form of touring. This is how we're going to, this is how we're touring now uh, for the moment. That'll all lift. I'm hoping fingers crossed, but um, in order to support, if you see other bands doing this kind of a thing and you're used to live music, 
this is how they make their living touring. So help us out. Uh, watch that show. You won't be disappointed with this show. It's pretty all over the map. And to that point of we're going to get out of this. We are. I am, I'm making a mental note to myself that, cause you and I've talked about this before, about I, I, I always say I want to come out and help with harvest for no other reason, help. I'm using the word help in quotation marks. Just so, you know, I want to, you know, be humble. Everybody wants to help until they're out here. Until they're at, no, no. I understand that I will be exposed as a giant uh, pussy out there, but I, I'm going to do it. I, we've talked about this before. I am going mm-hmm. to come there one year and mm-hmm. work and I want to be put to work uh, like for real, I'm getting in there in the dirt and I'm, I'm hoping it might be this year. I'm really hoping that things keep moving in the right direction and that we can also do a sham, sham bong, a sham bong of, uh, more, more sham bongs need to be done. Maynard, Maynard yeah, I have a lot of, sham bong. I, have a lot, I have a lot of friends, uh, that say, yeah, man, I want to come out and check that out. I'm like, you really don't, but I really want you to, because if you're able to make that you know, it is like, just come on, man, come out to this, come out to the park. You'll like it. Uh, I'm fucking park Frisbees. And then if you just, if your friend can just get you off the fucking couch to go to the park with a Frisbee, you go, Hey, you know, I'm glad you did that. I'm glad, I'm glad we're out doing something. So there's a lot of work to be done here during harvest, but you know, I've encouraged my friends to just come out and just dip your toe. You can say, this is, this I'm is not for do me. It, man. I'm no, I, I, I grew up, you know, my dad had, I grew up doing construction and stuff and I miss that all the time. There's something so pure about the idea that there, you know, there's no bullshit. You get out and you go, here's what we got to fucking do today. Right. This has got to happen today. Right. There's no, it's not people uh, hitting me up on social media and going, Oh, you did a great job. No, no, this, these grapes got to get picked today. We got to, we got to move this shit over here today. This is what has to happen. And there's, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm in, man. Now I say this, I'll be like two hours in. I'll be like, I quit, dude. I'm I'm uh, I'm going to the bar. <laughs> Last two hours. Uh, I'm going to the yeah. bar in Cottonwood uh, or wherever the hell. <laughs> hey, hey, you want? Hey, you guys want me to go on a lunch run or like a coffee run or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be, yeah Dan, I, I'll ahead. be the you PA. The... I'm the PA yeah. on this run. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Maynard James Keenan. It's always great to see you, man. It is always a joy to drink your wine and to just pick your brain. Encourage everybody to check out the Pussifer Show on April 17th. Go to Pussifer Live. Wait, make sure I got that right. It's, yeah, PussiferLive.com and get in there, get the tickets, check it out. You will not be disappointed. There's a, there's also a link. If you scroll down, there's, uh, there's still, you can still watch the, existential reckoning uh, pay-per-view if you're the one from the Arcasanti thing. Yeah. So you can, that, that ticket's also good for 72 hours, but you can do that right now. Look at that, man. Maynard, I will see you in person soon. I'll be the guy picking the grapes. You'll, you'll recognize me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh look, it's Dan working. Uh, we put this on your calendar for me on Tuesday, April 13th. Amy Yakuboff and I will be on Flaviar's Nightcap Live on Zoom at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll be debating the ever-important question, the old-fashioned versus the Negroni, which is better. We're making both cocktails to get to the bottom of it once and for all. 
Members of Flaviar will be able to join via Zoom and get involved. For you non-members, check us out on Flaviar's YouTube channel or become a member and come hang out for a spirited debate. Again, Tuesday, April 13th, the old-fashioned versus the Negroni. One drink will enter and only one comes out alive.